When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Robots Radio presents... In 1990, director Penny Marshall and star Robin Williams gave the world a bittersweet friendship that delved into the mystery of the soul. In 2020, we continue the springtime of swill with a favorite bottom-shelf bourbon. The film is Awakenings. The whiskey is Ezra Brooks. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1990 film Awakenings. Brad, for the past couple weeks we have been doing a little mini series on one of our favorite performers of all time, Mr. Robin Williams. It has been uh, almost six years now since the world has been without Robin Williams, and I have so enjoyed being able to go back and watch some of his best and most well-known, most beloved performances. And today we're looking at a movie that I put on the list because uh, it has always been near and dear to my heart, Awakenings. This is a movie that I don't think a lot of people have seen. It was a successful film when it came out. It was nominated for a few Oscars. It had big names attached to it. It was positively reviewed. And yet I think somewhere it got lost in the shuffle. And so I kind of wanted to use this Robin Williams series as a vehicle for us to check out this movie. And so I have to ask right at the top here, Brad, had you ever even heard of the movie Awakenings until it came up for this podcast? Actually, no, I've I've never heard of this film before I watched it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised at how this movie has kind of fallen away from popularity. This was kind of a hard film for me to even locate. It's not streaming anywhere. And yet, like this movie comes out in 1990. It stars Robin Williams at the height of his popularity. It stars Robert De Niro, which is one of the world's most famous actors. This movie comes out the same year as Goodfellas. And yet Robert De Niro gets an Oscar nomination, not for Goodfellas, but for this movie. So you'd think that this movie would have a little bit more of a reputation, that it would be a little bit more well known. But I feel like it's really just kind of fallen through the cracks. Well, and you've forgotten the most famous actor of all, Marge Simpson. That's right. Uh, The female lead of this movie, Eleanor, is played by Julie Kavner, who plays Marge on The Simpsons. I didn't know if you would quite pick up on that voice right away, Brad, but it's very distinct. Yeah, it it took me a little bit, but after a little bit, I was like, man, Eleanor sounds so familiar. And I'm not even a Simpsons fan. Like, like I've only seen a few episodes here or there. But, But after a little bit, I was like, that's Marge Simpson. That has to be Marge Simpson. So I looked it up and sure enough, there you are. So this movie Awakenings was based on a true story. It was based on the story uh, of a doctor named Oliver Sacks, who wrote down uh, this experience that he had with these patients who had encephalitis. 
and had gotten to the point where they were basically catatonic, where they were like frozen in a certain position. And Dr. Sachs kind of postulated that maybe what they were experiencing was like an advanced Parkinson's where they were their tremors were so bad that it actually just basically made them freeze. And so he started working with Parkinson's drugs and basically found that these patients started to wake up from their long slumber. And Brad, I don't want to get too far into Brad Explains, so I'm going to turn it over to you now. Having just seen this movie for the first time, can you walk us through the plot of the movie Awakenings? Well, there is this doctor and he wants to help these patients who stopped moving. And he figures out that they have Parkinson's. It's really advanced. So he uses Parkinson's drugs and they they come awake. Boom. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Bob, you you pretty much summarized the film. Um, To go a little bit deeper, uh, you you find out that the doctor himself, what's his last name? Yeah, in the movie, they they rename him Malcolm Sayer. That's what I I thought. I was like, I don't remember him being named Dr. Sachs in this. But so, yeah, in the movie, Dr. Sayer, he's very shy. Uh, He's a pretty lonely guy that has only ever done research. Um, He's not really been a MD for actual human beings. And so with that, you kind of realize that he is very ill at ease around other humans. But the, the most beautiful part about the movie is that as he helps these patients wake up, you kind of see him become awake to the world as well. And that's really the other part of the movie that's important. Absolutely. And Brad, I want to just kind of start talking through the movie as we experience it. So the movie opens in the 1930s. Now, the majority of the film is set in 1969, but we get this kind of prologue to the movie where we see this young man named uh, Leonard Lowe when he's a boy. And he starts to have these sort of violent tremors. He's unable to control his writing. Uh, He kind of zones out. His friends don't know where he's going mentally. And we find out in the course of the film that he has been committed to this hospital and that he's been there and he's been in this state of of basically being like paralyzed uh, for almost 30 years. And I thought it was really interesting that they chose to begin the movie this way. But Brad, I have to say... I actually really appreciated that they started the movie that way because we actually don't get introduced or reintroduced to the adult Leonard, who's played by Robert De Niro, until almost halfway through the movie. It's like the 50 minute mark where De Niro's character wakes up from this thing he's been experiencing. And I feel like even though it's Robert De Niro, even though he's a fantastic actor, it would have been way harder for me to get on board with this new character just kind of suddenly being introduced if they didn't clue me in at the beginning that he was going to be like the focus of the story. What did you think about that kind of prologue that we got? Well, I think I think the best part about it was the fact that they didn't give you the whole story. I, I really love that they show you Leonard at the start. They show the start of his symptoms, but then they cut away from him and they go to Dr. Sayer and they move on with the film because then it, it gives you some really important moments later in the film where the mom kind of fills you in on the slow progression of the disease from the point where the boy was 11, where we saw him, to when he went catatonic, which is around when he was 20 years old. And so like, I, I think that the, the prologue to the film is really beautifully done because it gives you just enough to know to fall in love with the character of Leonard. But it doesn't it doesn't, you know, bog you down with the uh, depressing part of his disease until much later. 
Yeah. And so it, it's it's really a beautiful way to start the movie. For sure. And then we get this kind of fade out and fade back in, and it's 1969 all of a sudden, and we're following this character, Malcolm Sayer, which is Robin Williams. And I want to get into talking about Robin Williams. You know, he's he's kind of our star of the month here. And part of the reason that I wanted to talk about this movie is this is such a different Robin Williams in this movie. You know, we've had him at his his kind of most extreme with Aladdin. We had him kind of towing the line between comedy and drama with Mrs. Doubtfire. And, you know, first of all, this movie is basically just a straight drama. But not only that, but Robin Williams is playing so against type in this movie. He's very timid. He's very shy. He's very socially awkward. And I feel like in the hands of a lesser actor, you could really overdo some of the shy, timid little ticks that Robin Williams does in this movie. But I really, really loved his performance in this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, honestly, I, I've seen enough of Robin Williams' catalog to... Th- I, I don't feel like this was an out-of-the-norm performance for him. Like, I think about who he is in other films, and not that they were great, but like films like Flubber, he pretty much plays a very similar character in that movie, even though that's a kid's comedy. Um, and, and even in like Dead Poets Society, he he has a confidence about him, but he still plays that quiet, reserved character um, that kind of comes out and, you know, his personality bursts forth in small bits throughout the movie. And so I think you see that in this film. Now, maybe this was the first time he really did it, which would make it, you know, a little more unique. Uh, but what I really loved about the film was Robin Williams' ability to show character growth throughout the movie. You know, that at the very start of the film, he's extremely awkward and extremely timid. But by the end of the film, you see that he's gained a modicum of confidence by helping these patients with Parkinson's. Uh, I, I really love the way he changes the character, you know, and you see the character grow throughout the film. And Brad, I really think that if they had put any other actor in this role... I probably would have been checked out of this movie after like 10 or 15 minutes. It is not a very fast paced movie and you really have to get a feel for like the rhythm that this movie wants to go at. And I honestly will probably talk about the script here in a little bit, too. But I think there are times where the script can get kind of like really cliched and eye rolling. And Robin Williams is for a lot of this movie, the only thing that really kept it going. And they lean really heavily on him to kind of establish that pace and that rhythm at the beginning of the movie. And if it wasn't for that sort of warmth and earnestness that Robin Williams brings to every character, I don't know if this movie would have been as compelling to me as it is. I'm telling you, man, Robin Williams is one of the most authentic, sincere actors I have ever seen in my life. He just knows how to bring warmth and depth to his characters that make you fall in love with them no matter who he is. And then on the other hand, we've got Robert De Niro. The more I watch this movie, and I've only seen it a handful of times, I think this is a really interesting role for De Niro to take. And if I could put it into like historical context here, like De Niro's coming off the back half of the 80s, which he made some good movies, he made some not great movies. And he basically takes a role here that it toes the line between being a leading role and a supporting role. He he is kind of the focus of the movie, but he's not in it nearly as much as Robin Williams is. The year before this movie came out, Daniel Day-Lewis won his first Oscar for a movie called My Left Foot, in which he played a kind of severely disabled person. 
And I think we were kind of at this point with the Academy Awards where if you could convincingly play somebody who had like a medical issue or a disability, the Oscars were just like awarding you, at least with a nomination. And a part of me wonders if De Niro took this role as like a response to what Daniel Day-Lewis had just been so successful with. And yet at the same time, I have to say, like, I really found it refreshing to see De Niro in a role like this. You know, this is not him playing a tough guy. It's not him playing a heavy. He's not a gangster. He's a really vulnerable person who kind of in some ways still has the mentality of a child, which is when he first started getting sick. Brad, what did you think about De Niro in this film? You know, he felt really strange to me. I I don't know what it was. I liked him in this role. I think he did a really good job. But I think the script kind of took him to some weird places when, you know, he almost felt like Jack Nicholson and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yep. when he's like demanding that they can go for a walk and and he's trying to talk. He's trying to become a rebel leader on the floor. And I some of the stuff just felt strange for him. But honestly, when the camera just sat with him and and let him be Leonard, I actually really liked his performance a lot. Brad, I think you're kind of hinting at something that I think we might as well just talk about at this point. And that is Penny Marshall as a director. She's a good director. She's made some good movies. A League of Their Own you know, is one of my favorites. But I don't think that she has kind of like the mastery or the control over her films that some of the other directors that we've looked at do. But even deeper than that, I think that this movie just has some really glaring script issues. There are whole subplots that seem to go nowhere. Like as this drug that they're giving the patients, which is called L-Dopa, as they kind of start to develop a resistance to it, they have to keep giving them more and more of the drug. And we start to see Leonard behave erratically. And that's the scenes you're talking about where he kind of he becomes really combative. The drug's not working. All these things you're experiencing are the side effects of that, and they're making you behave this way. I appreciate you coming to see me, but I have things to do. Leonard, Leonard, please look at yourself. No, no look at yourself. I have sickness. Sickness took me out of the world, and I fought to come back. I fought for 30 years, 30 years, and I'm still fighting. But you, you have me. no excuse. Nothing to do with you me. Have, you have no excuse. You're just a scared and lonely man with nothing. No life, nothing. You're the ones to sleep. Your medicine could be taken away. They can do that. You could wake up in the morning and it won't be there. And they don't really go anywhere with that. It just seems like one day he's no longer combative. And so much of this script, I feel like, is really, really good. And then it will, like, immediately take a left turn into a completely unnecessary scene or adding unnecessary characters. And I felt like it was just very uneven at times. And if it wasn't for the really great actors they had in this movie, I don't think this movie would have been successful at all. I'm kind of right there with you, Bob. This movie, it it moves pretty well. It's a little slow paced, but I, I found myself not minding the slow pace. The the frustrating thing for me was when I followed the slow pace, I was okay with it. But then, like you said, some of the storylines just went nowhere and they just kind of dissolved into the rest of the movie. And so I'm kind of like, okay, well, I'm willing to sit with you. I, I care about your characters. I like Dr. Sayer. I like Eleanor. I like Leonard. I like the orderly that helps them out throughout the film. Like, honestly, I, halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, this is like 
a happy-go-lucky, friendly version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm like, okay, I can get down with that. I like these characters a lot more than I like the characters in in Cuckoo's Nest. But in the end, I, I don't know if the payoff was there. And by the end of the film, you realize that these people are never actually going to be awake for the rest of their lives. And it it honestly just brings me to a really, really depressing, sad point that doesn't really have much moral to it or lesson. It's just kind of like, yeah, we could wake them up for a little bit and and then they go back catatonic and we can't do anything about it. And I was like, ooh, I don't know if you just rewarded me for all my patience that I gave you because I cared about your characters and the story you were telling. I think that's a really good point, Brad. And I do want to get into talking about that because... Where I think the script succeeds is in bringing up some of these kind of ethical questions, but that might be a better conversation for the back half of the episode when we kind of start to get into our analysis. I want to kind of key in on on one thing you were talking about, which was some of these scenes that that really felt like they were ripped from other movies. And there's two specific scenes for me in this movie where I really felt like the script needed some doctoring. The first scene is where Robin Williams' character has to try to convince, you know, like the head doctor at the hospital that they need this funding to continue to give all the patients this medicine. And they're kind of like in the commissary and the doctor tells him like, you're never going to get the money. And then one by one, everyone who had overheard this conversation comes up like, you know, like I am Spartacus. They all stand up and then they like plunk down a paycheck or like a check that they've written so that these patients can get their medicine. And I'm like, bro, it, it was the cheesiest, most unrealistic scene I've ever seen in a movie. And it was like none of that needed to be in the film. Like, I understand that they were trying to say Robin Williams is getting people on his side now, but it was just such a tacky and corny scene. I don't know if that scene stuck out to you, Brad. Oh, it was brutal. And the the frustrating thing was it didn't make logical sense. Like, did they just all have those checks ready to be made? (laughs) And like, as I was looking at it, I was like, do they all just have the same checkbook? Because every single check looked exactly the same. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, dude, get your prop designer out there. Just go buy a few different checkbooks and use different checks. Like, yeah, that scene was brutal. And honestly, it reminded me of a scene from another film that I really love that I think did it better which would be A Beautiful Mind. Because at the end of A Beautiful Mind, you know, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, it's almost 20 years old. But at the end of the movie, you know, the uh, Dr. Nash is sitting in the professor's lounge area and everybody comes up and gives them, you know, their pen. And it's like this sign of honor that I think he maybe received some sort of award or like lifetime type of deal. And he saw that happen at the start of the movie to somebody else when he was young. And then it happens again at the end of the movie. And that was really touching and meaningful because it felt like it was normal in the world, right? Mm. Whereas in in the world of of Awakenings, I guess people just have checks from the same checkbook and they're just ready to rip (laughs) off, you know, $100, $200, $300 just to go, yeah, let's let's just do this. Why not? And then the second scene that I want to talk about is this big field trip sequence, which even in my notes, I wrote down, wow, this is like directly lifted from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, you know, when we scheduled these two movies for this season, Brad, I wasn't even thinking about that connection. And it's just so funny that we watched them so close together because I think it really shows how poor of a job they did kind of adapting that field trip sequence to this movie. 
And the more I watch it, the more I think, you know, if I could put myself inside the mind of the screenwriter for this movie, I think what they really wanted to do is find a logical way to get Leonard down to the cafeteria so that he could meet this girl who kind of becomes like his love interest. And then they kind of said to themselves, okay, well, how is he going to get off the floor without getting caught? How are they going to let him go in the cafeteria by himself? And I almost feel like they designed this whole field trip where all of the other patients and Robin Williams all leave the hospital just as a way to get De Niro into that cafeteria. But the problem is like they keep cutting back and forth between this conversation De Niro's having with his love interest, this girl that he's crushing on in the cafeteria, and then they cut to what's going on at this field trip. And what they end up doing is like they take these patients to a nightclub which is open at noon. I don't like none of it makes any logical sense. The characters don't grow at all from having that field trip. And like, it's just, it seemed like a waste of screen time and they could have done a better, if they wanted to just get De Niro into the cafeteria, they could have found another way to do it. Come on, man. You, you've never gone to a nightclub at like 1230 on a, on a Tuesday. <laughs> My favorite thing about like, it is like, there's other people there that aren't the patients. Yeah. It's like yep, full of people. Dancing. See, and the thing is, I feel like they could have easily done that where they said, hey, we're going to take you on a special field trip. And then they could just show them like, I don't know, talking to the club owner and saying, hey, thanks for opening this up. This means so much to them to be able to do this. Like, and there you go. You have them at a nightclub. They're dancing. It's just them. It's something special for them. And it makes sense within the movie. But like you said, in, instead, it's like, why Why are there, you know, real human beings you know, dancing at this nightclub at Tuesday at 1230. It it doesn't really make any sense. No, it doesn't. And that's the frustration with this movie. But I also think it's kind of what I like about the movie in some ways, because like those both of those scenes are really bad, but they set up really good scenes later on in the movie. And with this film, it's almost like you have to get through the bad stuff and then you get the emotional payoff of like some really good scenes that come later. Because from that scene with De Niro and his love interest, you get a scene later in the film where he's starting to go back into his sort of like Parkinsonian state. And he's the tremors are so bad that he can't even sit straight. And you get this really heartbreaking scene where she she has to sit there and watch him go through this. And then she kind of holds him and they start slow dancing and you see him start to calm down a bit. And it's, I mean, it's so sad. It's almost like this a similar scene in the movie, The Notebook. It's what it reminded me of a lot. But I think that in order to get to that moment, you had to go through this kind of nonsensical crap that you went through before it. And then with the field trip scene, you get a really similar thing where as soon as they all get back to the hospital, the movie takes a very sort of melancholy turn and the patients start to realize all the things that they've lost out on in these years that they've spent in kind of a catatonic state. And they all start to kind of dwell on like, what does this mean for me? I know what year it is. I just can't imagine being older than 22. I have no experience at it. I know it's not 1926. And they ask one of the patients, you know, how do you feel? And he says, I feel old and I feel swindled. And yeah, I really found that scene to be really, really powerful. But the problem with this movie is that you have to sit through 15 minutes of setup just to get that payoff. Well, and the other problem is that 
like, and and I guess we'll get into this later, but like on an ethical level, I mean, I mean, maybe she means to do this, but she keeps setting us up for like, hey, they're awake and they can dance and they can do these things now, but they're going to lose it all. And not only are they swindled of years of life that they lost when they were catatonic, but now they have knowledge of what they're losing out on when they go catatonic again. So like, it's one thing for them to go catatonic the first time when they were younger, but it's a it's a whole nother thing for them to have woken back up, to have known what happened to them, to have known what they're missing out on, and then slowly go back into that catatonic state. That just seems really brutal to me. Yeah, and I mean, Brad, you kind of hinted at this as well, but this movie does not have a traditional happy ending. Like, I feel like they try to make it optimistic with Robin Williams kind of learning what it means to be alive and to appreciate life more. But at the end of the day, the the true story of this film is that the patients slip back into their state and and they've never been able to have a, you know a prolonged awakening again and you have to watch them kind of fall back into that state. It's a tough movie to watch. And I think that we're bringing up some really good points about the ethics of what they did and whether or not is it really worth it to do that to somebody. We'll get into that on the back half of this episode. But for now, what do you say we just pause here and we try this Ezra Brooks bourbon? I would love to do that, Bob. All right, so today we are checking out Ezra Brooks Kentucky Straight Bourbon. This is a 90 proof bourbon from Lux Row Distillery. They've actually been making some really big waves. They're a pretty major producer of bourbon, but uh, in the last couple of years, they have released an Ezra Brooks that's called Old Ezra Seven Year. And it has been one of the most awarded, one of the most respected bourbons on the market. It's actually selling in Ohio for like $50 now. This is like the younger, cheaper cousin of old Ezra. Uh, It does not cost nearly $50. We'll get to the cost in just a minute. But Brad, have you ever heard of the Ezra Brooks brand before? Yeah, I have heard of Ezra Brooks. Uh, I haven't really heard much about it, but I'm excited to try it. So once again, Brad and I have gotten ourselves these small, little, adorable 50 milliliter bottles. And Brad, I paid $1.19 for each of these. So we are are fully invested $2.38 here. Way past that uh, 99 cent mark for a lot of these we've spent. I know, right? So Brad, what are we picking up here on this Ezra Brooks nose? Bob, I I don't want to be super rude, but like I'm getting to the point where I can smell the cheapness of a whiskey. Uh, and this is one of them. There's just something astringent about the smell where I go, oh, they didn't spend much money on making this. The kind of really nice way that I tried to put it when I took my notes on this was that this is alcohol forward. <laughs> like it, when you when you nose it, the very first thing you get is just a blast of alcohol. And it took a long time for this whiskey to kind of settle down in the glass. It was like alcohol. And then the next thing I got on top of that was just tons of oak. I couldn't tell at first what it was because I was like, this doesn't smell like a really sweet bourbon. It really was that combination of just alcohol and wood. 
after a few minutes, I think it it kind of rounded off a little bit. It did have some really nice wood notes for me, uh, but it took a while to get there. I ended up really liking the notes because I started to find some sort of fruit notes on it. But like you said, Brad, especially if you're if you're just pouring it out and nosing it immediately, you're not going to get very much on the nose of this. Yeah, I I feel like I'm getting a little bit of like like a warm vanilla sugar type of smell from it. But but I'm reaching for that even. I'm going to give it a five just right down the middle for nose. Yeah, I think I've been letting mine kind of (laughs) simmer for a little bit longer here. Um, I'm going to give it a six on the nose. It does get a lot better if you let it kind of mellow. But again, you shouldn't have to do that in order to appreciate the nose on something. So not off to a good start here on this Ezra Brooks. Why don't we give it a sip, Brad? Huh, that's a lot more watery than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's it's kind of sweet on the front in a nondescript way. Like I can't exactly place what it tastes like. It's just sweet. You get a lot of those sort of classic bourbon notes. It does have quite a bit of an alcohol tingle. I appreciate that this is 90 proof and not 80 proof. I think it's a lot better at 90 than it would be if they had watered it down even more to 80 proof. The sort of middle of the palate, I found like it's really thin. You're right, Brad. It's, It's very watery. But the finish on it was really good. It's really spicy, really sweet. I get a lot of cinnamon, almost like a um, like a really good like a cinnamon applesauce kind of flavor, like an apple pie almost. I really, really liked where the flavor went, but it kind of took a while to get there. Uh, I don't know. What are you thinking on the taste here, Brad? Yeah, on the taste, it, it it's watered down enough that you don't really have much going on on the tip of your tongue. Like you said, once it kind of sits for a second on your palate, you do get some notes of cinnamon, which is interesting. It's not a common one. But honestly, the finish is just okay as well. I'm not getting a ton on the finish. It dissipates really quickly. And it's kind of leaving me with a little bit of a sourness Mm -hmm. on the back of my palate that I'm not enjoying. I I think I'm going to give it a four on the taste and a four on the finish. Oh, wow. Yeah, I see. I like the taste a lot more. The more I sip it, the more I get that sort of cinnamon apple flavor, which I really, really like. I'm actually going to give this an eight on the taste Uh, compared to some of the springtime of swill bourbons that we've been doing. I think this might be the best of the bourbons so far. The finish. You're right, Brad. It's it's real short. It's bitter. Almost like a uh, like a citrusy, like a grapefruit or something. It's not unpleasant, but it's also not what I would be hoping for after what I got on the flavor. So I'm just going to give the finish a five. And that brings us to overall balance. I don't think this is a bad whiskey. I don't think it's poorly balanced either. I will say that I think the nose definitely threw me off because the taste is so much different than what I got on the nose. None of them were necessarily terrible, but they don't really go together well. What do you think about the balance here? Um, I actually think it's a decently well-balanced whiskey. There there wasn't anything that surprised me throughout. Um, I enjoyed the nose just okay. The flavor was okay. The finish was okay. All of it was pretty well-balanced. I'll give it a six and a half on balance. Yeah, that's exactly where I came out to as well, Brad. Six and a half, which takes us to overall value. Now, our criteria for the springtime of Swill is that we're trying to get uh, at or below $15 for a fifth. And this definitely qualifies. In the state of Ohio, a fifth of Ezra Brooks is going to cost you $10.99. So it's setting you back $11. Brad, I think this is actually a pretty good value for an $11 bourbon. I mean, this is cheaper than Benchmark. 
And I mean, I don't really think that it's necessarily way better than Benchmark, but I would I would say it's comparable. I can't really think of anything that would only cost you $10 that would necessarily be better than this and would be widely available. I'm going to give it a seven and a half on value. Yeah, actually, for $11, this is a pretty good value. I'm going to go ahead and give it a seven out of 10. I, I, as much as I didn't really give it high scores on the other marks, this is a decent whiskey. It's, it's not that bad. And I was, I was thinking if it was 14 or $15, it'd be a lower score, but at 10, $11, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. So yeah, let's go ahead and give it a seven. That's bringing me out to a 33 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you to? I'm at a 26.5. Oh, wow. You were, so you were significantly lower than I was. That's taken us to a 59.5 out of 100, or on average, 29.75. I do feel like that's a little bit low, uh, especially with some of the scores we've given the other springtime of Swill recipients. You know, I think the, the closest thing that we've really had to this is the very old Barton 90 proof. And this is pretty comparable to that for me. And it's way more widely available. So I'm actually going to recommend. Brad, are you going to recommend this? I'm not going to recommend this. I I mean, I guess if you are looking for something at $10 to $11, I would say, sure, go for it. But just as a generalized whiskey recommendation, I'm not going to be able to do that, Bob. All right. So we are split on Ezra Brooks 90. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Awakenings, a movie that I hope we're not split on? Let's get to it. So that was Ezra Brooks, a whiskey that we are very divided on. And Brad, it sounds like we may not be divided in our appreciation of this movie, but that we kind of feel like this movie is divided in itself. There's good stuff. There's bad stuff. Before we left for the break, we said we were going to talk about kind of the ethics of what's going on in this movie. Those are the big questions the movie asks. And I think having to watch these characters go through what they go through. And it is like, I I cannot stress this enough. This is a heartbreaking movie to watch. Yeah. It's it, it's uplifting in a lot of ways, but Brad likes to make fun of me because I am a, a crier at movies. <laughs> I don't know if there is another movie on planet Earth that makes me ugly cry harder than this movie. I, I was like an emotional wreck at the end of this film. Yeah, see, I, I'm just not there. I don't know. Our you know good friend of show, Jordan McCain, this is a movie that he has told me is one of his favorites, and he said that he cries at the end of it every time. I don't know. I kind of got to the end of the film, and I, I guess I kind of saw it coming. Like, even when he awakens Robert De Niro the first time, there was something in the back of my head that was like, man, this isn't going to last, because, like, what happens when he becomes resistant to the drug, and what happens when they have to give him more and more? Like, he might go back into his catatonic state, and sure enough, that's what happens. And so by the end of the movie, I was kind of like, yeah, that that makes sense to me. I, I guess this is what happened. And I was I guess I was just kind of left feeling cold and empty on the inside rather than full of emotions. I was trying to think of movies to compare this to. And I, I do think, you know, I made the comparison to The Notebook earlier. I do think that there are aspects of it that are like The Notebook, because if you've ever 
you know, if you've ever had some a loved one go through a, a disorder or a disease like Alzheimer's, it's really hard to watch. And I think both of these movies are equally hard to watch in that way. But what I ended up coming around to was I think that this movie has a lot of the same DNA of a movie like The Green Mile. And that's not to say that the stories are the same in in any way. But if you think about the way that The Green Mile ends, and again, spoilers if you haven't seen The Green Mile, basically you find out that Tom Hanks's character absorbed this power that is allowing him to live longer than everyone else he knows. And he basically talks about how it's a miracle and it's a curse at the same time. And every aspect of this miracle that he's experiencing is tinged with sadness. And I really feel like that's kind of the theme of this movie. Yes, they were able to bring these people back out of this catatonic state, but at what cost? Is it is it worth it to do that to somebody? Is it worth it to, like you said, Brad, to make them aware of how much time they've lost, of, of how many loved ones they've lost along the way that they weren't even aware of? And I think that's that's where this movie succeeds the most, is in asking those questions and allowing the audience to kind of wrestle with them a little bit. See, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I, I think that the scene that really pushes me away from that conclusion is when you see Leonard's mom kind of get really angry about it and just saying like you've turned him into a monster like this isn't who he is you've made him angry and you woke him up and you did this there was nothing i could do about it no one i could go to and say stop this please stop this can't you see my son is in pain my son is in pain please stop this he's fighting mrs low He's losing. And and they kind of turn her into a bad guy for half a second. But I kind of agree with her. Like if if she at the end of the movie came to Robin Williams and said, you know, hey, Dr. Sayer, like I, I know that he's returned to his catatonic state. But thank you for the summer that I was able to have with him. Thank you for the opportunity to get to know my son one more time. Then I think that you would have a more satisfying conclusion but but at the end of this movie, you're just kind of left with this emptiness of like, well, I guess they just wake up. And then with the final text of the movie, when they kind of explain what happened after the film ends, they tell you that they wake up multiple more times in their lives, but it's never as long or as fulfilling as this time was. And so in my mind, I just go, holy crap, they just live in this torturous hell where they wake up in and out of sleep, this drug-induced haze and this catatonia. And I just, uh, to me, that was just a really brutal ending that made me go ethically, now this is wrong. What, what they're doing to these people is wrong and it shouldn't happen. And I don't know if I'm glad that I watched this movie. Wow. that's Those are really strong words, Brad. I think I, I'm kind of living in that tension of is it is it wrong is it right because i think at the end of the day morally i feel like it is better for people to experience life and what they were experiencing when they were on the drug was a higher quality of life than they would have had otherwise we can hide behind the veil of science and say it was the drug that failed or that the illness itself had returned or that the patients were unable to cope with losing decades of their lives. But the reality is, we don't know what went wrong any more than we know what went right. What we do know is as the chemical window closed, another awakening took place. 
that the human spirit is more powerful than any drug. And that is what needs to be nourished. With work, play, friendship, family. These are the things that matter. This is what we've forgotten. simplest things and i think the movie probably doesn't wrestle with those questions as much as it should it's almost like it introduces those questions and then it leaves it up to you to decide i wish that there was more conversation between robin williams and eleanor and i feel like they kind of touch on it because you know robin williams is asking at one point is it right what i'm doing i gave life and then now it's being taken away and she just kind of responds you know it's given and it's taken away from all of us and he says Why doesn't that comfort me? And I actually thought like, yes, go further into that. Go further into the fact that like, yes, it's true that life can be taken away from us, but it's not comforting to know that. And I wish that the movie had gone a little bit further into Robin Williams' own doubts about what he was doing. Because you're right, Brad. There are some some moments in this movie where I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I agree with the ethics of this. Like when he, on his own decides to increase the dosage of what Robert De Niro's character is ingesting. And that's actually what causes him to wake up. And it was an unapproved dosage. And I'm like, oh, man, that is like really ethically wrong from a medical point of view. Yeah. And and it seems like that that frustrate me about about this movie, because it doesn't feel like Penny Marshall is willing to go as far as she needs to go to really grab a hold of these questions and deal with them. It kind of feel like she just barely like cautiously puts them out in front of you and then pulls them back and, and shoves them under the mattress and, and uh, don't worry about it. We're, we're just not going to ask questions. We're just going to see what happens. And, and I wish that she was willing to just let you sit with those because w- like you, the scene you were talking about when, when Dr. Sayer is changing the medication amount, there's no consequences for that. Nobody ever finds out. Nobody ever talks about it. They just move on from it. And it's another storyline that goes nowhere. And and I wish that she had been willing to push into those uncomfortable moments to kind of deal with what's happening. And yet I, I will say that, like, there are parts of this movie that I think are really masterfully set up. Like, they start to introduce you to the fact that this might not end well pretty early on. And for me, I started to notice it right when they all get back from that field trip. And and I touched on this a bit ago, but like you get this really sort of melancholy scene where they're all reflecting on what happened. And Robin Williams goes up to this character named Lucy, who's this older woman who insists that it's still, you know, 1926 or whatever it is. And, and he just says like Lucy and she jumps up and she says, take me away from this place. And it is like the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen because, you know, she still has this mentality of a younger woman and she's hoping that someone will come and rescue her. And you know that this is not going to end the way you want it to end for for some of these characters. And I thought that Penny Marshall did a really good job of kind of introducing or weaving in those moments of sadness early on. When De Niro has this big scene in front of the whole board of doctors, you start to see that his ticks are starting to come back. And it's very, very subtle at first, but she cuts right to Robin Williams and his face changes. And you can tell that he's noticing something in De Niro's demeanor. 
And I actually love how De Niro kind of brings those things into his character because it reminded me of when we talked about the aviator and DiCaprio started to weave those ticks in really early on. So there's moments in this movie that I thought, wow, they're really setting this up well. And then there's other moments where it's like, man, you just totally dropped the ball on this, you know, whole subplot. Yeah. And honestly, that that kind of brings me to my final score for this film. Uh, there's a lot to like in this movie. There's a lot to enjoy. But overall, I, I kind of really struggled to connect with it. I really struggled to connect with Penny Marshall as a director. You know, I, I liked Robin Williams a lot. I liked Robert De Niro a lot. I thought John Hurd did a really good job with what he had been given. Uh, but overall, I think the script struggles at points to to keep you involved with the ethical dilemmas that are at the core of this film. And I, I think there's certain scenes that are just really, really hard to bear. Um, so overall, I think I'm going to give this movie a seven and a half out of 10. It, it has a lot of merits. It asks you to deal with some really intense questions, but there's some pretty key missteps that keep it from being a great film. This is one of those movies that really got its hooks in me. And I think because it affected me so much emotionally that for a long time, I overlooked a lot of its flaws. And you're absolutely right, Brad. There are a lot of flaws in this movie. And yet it's like they chose the two perfect actors to elevate this movie. The very first scene you get with De Niro and Robin Williams when Leonard has just woken up and Robin Williams is telling him it's nighttime. Everybody's asleep. And De Niro says, I'm not asleep. And Robin Williams is just like, you can tell he's tearing up and he's like, no, you're awake. Moments like that between two brilliant actors are what elevates this movie to something more. I think that Randy Newman's score is just beautiful. And it also like clearly manipulated me into crying on multiple occasions. But the good in this movie for me outweighs the bad. And I really do think that the ending of the film is way better than we're giving it credit for. So for me, this movie is going to be an eight and a half out of 10. It's not perfect. I do think it's worth seeing. I think the performances are great. I think it's a worthy addition to Robin Williams catalog. So for me, it's an eight and a half out of 10. Yeah, Bob, that I think that's a good score. Uh, I think that if I had jived with the film a little bit more, if I was okay with some of the things that went on, I probably would give it about an eight to an eight and a half. Um, but certain things just kind of didn't didn't sit well with me. So, I, you know, I'm sitting at a seven and a half. I would still recommend this movie, though. I think it's I think it's a valuable film to have been made. I think it's something that people should watch. People should deal with medical ethical dilemmas. I, I think it's important to do these things in a world that's very connected to medicine and testing and trying to solve these medical mysteries. I, I think it's important to think about these things. But yeah, seven and a half. I, it's a solid movie. So that's bringing us out to an average of an 8 out of 10, which I think is is kind of right on the money for what most people think. This has a 7.8 on IMDb. It is an underseen movie, so I really do hope that we might inspire a couple people to go out and watch this film. If you have seen Awakenings and you want to give us your thoughts on it, please feel free to reach out to us. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a call. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that phone number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be finishing up our series on Robin Williams with the film that brought him his Academy Award, 1997's Goodwill Hunting. For the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm really excited for next week's movie. And we'll see you next time. Bye.